Father in heaven, give us wisdom now that we might know and fear you properly. And then help us to live out what we hear. To your glory. Amen. What does it take to get a driver's license and learn to drive? In Australia, it's pretty straightforward. You get a learner's license by studying the road rules and sitting an exam on those rules. And if you pass that exam, you then get your learner's permit, where you then get to sit in a car with an instructor or scream in the car with your parents and experience what it's like to drive. In Queensland in particular, you need to build up a certain number of hours before you can then learn, sit the driving test. So you, you sit in the, in the car, you go through the rules, you, you learn it, you apply it, you gain experience, and then you sit your driving test. And if you pass that test, you get your license. But if you were in China, it's a different story. According to Reuters journalist Nick McPhee, McPhee uh, things were quite different. You see, one day when he was driving along the streets of Beijing, he made a big mistake. He stopped at a red light. Turns out he was doing the right thing because he later checked the Chinese highway code and he had done the right thing, but that didn't stop a lineup of cars behind him beeping and honking their horns and making all sorts of rude gestures to get him to move. After a few road offences, he had to actually retake the road traffic theory test. And some of the questions on that test were easy to pass. Blowing the horn in an area or section where horn blowing is prohibited is not permitted. True or false? All right. Some questions were confusing. That's actually an actual question. Some questions were confusing. If a motor vehicle is passing through an intersection without a traffic light or traffic sign, should it give right-of-way to vehicles that have a green light? <laughs> Some questions were scary. When a bicycle rider tries to grasp a moving vehicle, <laughs> the driver should accelerate to get away from him, <laughs> stop quickly, or stop smoothly. And some questions' answers were questionable. If your petrol tank catches fire, <laughs> do you douse it with water, use a carbon dioxide fire extinguisher, or cover the flames with cotton padded clothes? <laughs> the answer apparently was cotton padded clothes. Well, what does this have to do with our passage this morning? Learning and applying wisdom in our lives is more like getting a license in China than it is like getting a license in Australia. You see, life is messy. It's not neat. Sometimes the rules are clear, and other times situations are confusing and scary. And to navigate this life properly as God's people, we need wisdom. So over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at Proverbs and seeing how it helps us to know wisdom and to know life. Now, in the opening verses, we're given the title to this book. Verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Now, in this one line, we're told two things. First, we're told that this book is from Solomon or that Solomon has collated it. Uh, son of David, king of Israel. 
And as we had read out for us in 1 Kings chapter 4 before, Solomon was the wisest man in all of Israel. Not because of some unique talent, but because he prayed for it and God granted it to him. So we're reading a book from one of the wisest men of all time. Now we're also told what this book is about and how to read it. Proverbs. A proverb is a short saying, a line or two. Uh, This collection forms part of what we call wisdom literature, reflections on life meant to encourage the listener to pause, to slow down, to think about these sayings and how they might apply in various ways to life. But therein, immediately, lies a problem for us. See, two words into verse 1, and we might have hit our first stumbling block. See, I think for most of us, we prefer clear instructions. Just give me the answer. Tell me the rules. Tell me exactly what I need to do and when I need to do it. But that's not how Proverbs works. That's not how wisdom literature works. See, Proverbs is not a book just for a black and white world. This is a book about wisdom and giving wisdom, and it's a book that invites us to ponder the thoughts of the wise and how they might apply in in the almost infinite shades of grey that we live in. And it's a book that contains all sorts of wisdom. Uh, Are you a single man looking for a good wife? There's advice for you here. Are you a parent wanting to raise godly children? There's advice for you here as well. Are you looking to control your tongue, which sometimes likes to lie and to gossip and to yell? Uh, There's wisdom here too. Are you wondering why it's so important to roll out of bed each morning and get to work and work hard? There's advice here too. Over the next few weeks, we'll be skipping through the book. Then the sermon, this sermon and next week, we'll look at the first half of the book and we'll wrestle with what it means to choose wisdom. And in the second half from chapter 10, Pastor Ben will walk us through some very practical applications from Proverbs on our words, on our work, and on our wealth. That's a nice alliteration. Did you plan that? Nice. All right. There's heaps of wisdom here to be found. In fact, that's the goal of the book. When we turn to verses 2 to 6, we find clearly stated the purpose of the book, what, what is being given and who it is given to. And so let's start with that. What is being given? What is being given? Verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, wisdom. And when you think of someone who is wise, what comes to your mind? I said, who is wise to you? What picture, what person would come to your mind? Maybe you would think of someone older than us, someone with lots of experience. I asked this question in our clay Bible study, and one of the girls immediately went, hmm. Right? Maybe we think of someone smart, someone intelligent, someone who knows a lot of things. Maybe we think of someone who has been successful in life. They've got a nice house. They've got a nice career, a a successful family. They must be wise. Well, the word wisdom itself actually means something like the word skill. The skill of daily living, of expertise, of competence. Someone who not only knows a lot, but understands how life really works. 
Dane Ortland, in his commentary, illustrates it this way. Wisdom knows better than to walk onto a football field and hope the game will go well somehow. Wisdom draws up a game plan that will score more goals than the opponents because that plan takes into account not only, the, not only the rules of the game, but also psychology and timing and strategy and everything it takes to win. So wisdom doesn't rely on age or intelligence or success, but a wise person asks hard questions about life, understands God's answers, and is guided to those answers to practical everyday living. A wise person skillfully understands how to live God's way. Instruction. What is given? Wisdom and instruction. Instruction is another way of saying teaching. Or being given insight, as the second half of verse 2 says. Wisdom is something taught. We are not born with it. Wisdom is not a level that you rise to as though you suddenly hit it and become wise. You don't graduate and become wise. It is something that you learn and are taught throughout life. And the instruction centers on, in on verse 3 on wise dealing, on righteousness, on justice and equity. What these are is not immediately spelled out for us in, this, in the immediate context. But if you read this book in the backdrop of Israel's history and Israel's laws in the Old Testament, then righteousness is about living rightly before God, living in purity and holiness, living as God's people, living the way he intends for his people to live as a holy nation and a light to the world. God's people, however, were not holy and righteous by nature. It's not in their DNA. Right? That much is very clear as you read through the Old Testament. And so Proverbs here is offering teaching on how to be holy and righteous, how to be a people who love justice. Next we see in verse 4 that what is given is prudence and discretion. Now I'm guessing that in this past week, the word prudence was not used in your vocabulary. It wasn't used in mine. Prudence and discretion, they carry this idea of discernment, of being able to discern and work out the details of a situation, to use reason in the context of fearing God, to navigate tricky issues in life, to be cool-headed, to be able to think and plan, all of that so that you will not be fooled. Fooled by what? Anything that will want to fool you. Sin, temptation, false teaching. Wisdom will give you the prudence, discretion and discernment to navigate through this fallen world. Finally, also in verse 4, we see knowledge is on offer. So what is being given? Wisdom, skill in living God's way, instruction, teaching on how to skillfully live God's way, prudence and discretion, discernment to live God's way in, in this fallen world. And so who is it being given to? When you look at verse 4, it will come as no surprise, verse 4, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to youth. Uh, two types of people here are listed, uh, the simple and youth. The simple person is not a fool or a mocker. Proverbs says some harsh things about fools and mockers. No, the simple person here is referring to someone who is young, less mature, not 
overly wise, maybe even a little naive. You can be a teenager and simple, but you can also be an adult and simple. Remember, age doesn't mean maturity, it just means physically old. The key thing is that you're teachable. Simple-mindedness, being young, you don't have to stay that way forever. Proverbs is offering instruction, prudence, and discretion. So will you take that up? The simple and young are given encouragement to grow in wisdom, and so are the wise. Verse 5, let the wise hear an increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. Even the mature among us and wise among us will benefit from reflection and on the instructions in this book. The encouragement from verses 5 to 6 to increase in learning. Don't be satisfied with what you know. Don't be satisfied with what you know. Enhance what you already know. Increase in learning to obtain guidance. Guidance in knowing how to live God's way in this fallen world. What a great need there is for this. In our ever-increasingly complex world, to have understanding and to have guidance. Too often we dismiss the Bible because it doesn't appear to have direct answers to our complex questions. But what Proverbs is encouraging us to do is to hear, to understand, and to meditate on God's Word and to grow in understanding how to apply it properly. See, one mark of a truly wise person is that they are keenly aware, not what they do know, but what they don't know. A wise and mature person is humble enough to admit their lack of wisdom and knowledge in many areas. And then what will they do? They will listen, they will reflect on these proverbs, and they will seek to grow in their understanding. So what is on offer? Wisdom. Who is it being offered to? The simple, the young, the wise. Basically, everyone. Everyone is being encouraged to listen to these words, chew on them, and grow in wisdom. Proverbs has been written so that we would know, understand, and grow in discerning how to live rightly in this world. But there's a big catch. You see, while everyone is welcome to the table to learn and grow, there's an entry requirement. There's a necessary precondition. Back in my day, when you enrolled into a uni course, you needed to prove that you had, a good, you had good enough marks to get the course you wanted, and you had to prove that you had done the necessary subjects in high school to qualify as well. Being Asian, I did all the maths and sciences in high school. It took me 18 months into my senior years, six months before I graduated, to realize I wasn't good at maths and science. I was pretty good at English, so I studied law because the only, law, the only subject requirement in law was English. Fantastic. If you want wisdom, if you want to know how to live God's way in this world, there's one crucial requirement, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if you want a seat at the table for learning, if you want this knowledge, wisdom, and instruction, then you must begin by fearing God. A fool is someone who despises this, someone who hates Yahweh. 
Now, this doesn't mean that you, cannot be, you, you, you can only be wise, intelligent, and smart with God, right? Some of the smartest and wisest minds in our world and, and history have been indifferent or hostile to God. See, a fool is someone who doesn't see the big picture that verse 7 is pointing to. Someone who uses their knowledge and understanding of this world, but in a way that denies the Creator, suppresses the knowledge of God, and exchanges the truth for a lie. True knowledge begins with an acknowledgement that everything is created and sustained by God. And that God is the one who imparts knowledge, not only through experience, observation, and reason, but also through revelation, through speaking. The wise understand this because their starting position is to fear Yahweh, to fear God. Now let me explain that what fearing God is, and then let me explain why this is the key to the passage of the book, uh, key to this passage and to the book of Proverbs. Now, when the Bible talks about fearing God, the often asked question is, what does this mean? Am I not supposed to love and be in awe of God? Why am I meant to fear Him, to be afraid of Him? I think the word fear has quite a lot of strong negative vibes about it. It brings up unhelpful memories and ideas that the God of the Old Testament is a big, scary God. But we believe in the loving and kind God of the New Testament. So, what does the Bible mean when it talks about fearing God? Some people say that it's to be in awe of God, to respect Him. And while the word fear does mean these things, the word itself, fear, has a very wide range of meaning. So it's probably unhelpful to just boil it down to respect. I think the best way to understand fear is actually to do a quick survey of what happens in the Bible when people meet God. Right? Think about Moses and the burning bush. Right? Meeting God for the first time. When he realizes he's in the presence of God, he throws off his shoes, which is a mark of respect, and he falls face first, flat on the ground. He hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Or more recently, think about Isaiah as he gets transported into the throne room of God, realizing that he is in the presence of such holiness, so much holiness that the angels do not declare God to be holy or holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. So Isaiah recognizes that he's done for. He is unclean. He is better off dead than to stand for another second longer in the presence of God. Think about Daniel, when after receiving his vision in chapter 10, he falls to the ground, face flat on the ground with no strength left in him. Or think about Job, also flattened to the ground as God presents himself, and Job yells out, finally, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In all these examples, we see terror, but we also see trust. We see these men on their faces, flat on their faces, in terror, not able to look at God, but speaking with God at the same time. But the ultimate examples of how, of, I think, of fear is, is to see people interact with Jesus. Jesus, the incarnation of God, the fullness of God in flesh, truly God and truly man, 
The three wise men, think about it, from the beginning of Jesus' life, the three wise men, they rejoice to see that star over Bethlehem. But when they arrive and they finally meet the child, they fall down and they worship. In Luke chapter 7, when Jesus raises the widow's son from death, in front of the widow, in front of his mother, in front of his disciples, and in front of a small crowd, we're told fear seized all of them. When Peter recognized the resurrected Jesus on the shore, after pulling in a massive net of fish, he fell on his knees and cried out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And who could forget that moment when Jesus and his disciples were in a boat, a raging storm, raging, a storm raging around them, so big that fishermen, experienced fishermen were afraid. And with just a word, Jesus calmed the raging sea. But there was no calm in the disciples' hearts, for Mark tells us that they were filled with great fear. And yet at the same time, we also see stories of immense trust in Jesus. Children will run up to play with him. The lame, the poor, the sick would crowd around him and touch him. Tax collectors and sinners enjoyed his presence as they feasted and drank with him. Fear and faith, terror and trust. And these pictures of Jesus, in these pictures of Jesus, we see what it means to fear the Lord. To fear him does mean to be afraid. It is right to be afraid of the one who is all-powerful. But equally, there is trust. I can think of no other religion that says that you can have such an intimate, personal, yet awe-filled relationship with God. Now, I guess we have to ask ourselves, if we think of our relationship with God in these ways, we talk about trusting God, maybe even we talk about fearing God, but have we truly feared Him? If there is no terror in your mind as you think about God, it may be, it might be that you have domesticated him, put him in a little box. But if there is only terror and no trust and no awe and no love, then you have not truly met or understood the God of the Bible. To understand true and proper fear Look at how people interacted with God. Look at how people interacted with Jesus. This is what it means to fear God. Now here's why it's, this is so crucial to understanding Proverbs. Proverbs is a book of wisdom, but it's not like the wisdom of this world. It's not like the works of Plato or Aristotle or the sayings of Confucius. Proverbs and all of the Bible's wisdom sets itself apart because it says that you cannot gain true wisdom apart from real relationship with God. If you want true wisdom, you need to have a right relationship with God and an appropriate attitude towards Him. And the Bible calls that attitude fear. Now, this is important to grasp because this here, this verse, and we'll see it again in chapter 9, it sets the foundation for what comes in the rest of the book. The rest of the book, chapters 10 to 30, you'll notice, they don't come back to this verse very often. But here it is at the start to ground all of the experiences, the observation, the reasonings that in the advice to come. Fearing God is the source 
of all wisdom that will follow. Proverbs chapter 1 verses 1 to 7 is telling us right from the start the purpose of this book. First, we're being encouraged to read the Proverbs so that you'll know, understand, receive and grow in wisdom. All too readily, I think we just want to be told what to do. Here are the rules, here are the situations that these apply, go for it. But the Bible's main effort is to transform our minds, to grow us in wisdom so that we can navigate this messy and broken world to the glory of God. So when we're applying the Bible to our lives, the first question should not be, what do I need to do? That is a good question, but maybe it shouldn't be first. The first question, I think, should be, what do I need to know? What does my head need to know? What does my heart need to trust? Second, Proverbs is encouraging maturity for the simple and discernment for youth. Our our goal as God's people is to mature and grow in wisdom and discernment. And discernment is sorely needed in the church today. Just look at the way the world perceives Christians. And why do they perceive Christians that way? Because of the silly things and the, the, that Christians have said and done in the past, the way that, that Christians have gotten themselves into trouble and bring shame upon Jesus. You go to Kurong or any Christian bookstore and you look at the bestsellers list. I'm not knocking Kurong. They're a business. I love it. I buy from them all the time. But when you go there and you look at their top 10 bestsellers, you look at how much false teaching the church seems to be so comfortable with. Discernment is sorely needed. Now, part of the reason why I think discernment is not a strong point is because we're not perfect. We're sinful. We're not expected to be perfect. But I think part of the blame can also be put down to a lack of wisdom and discernment in the church. So where does wisdom begin? Fearing God rightly and reflecting on his word. (coughs) Finally, these opening verses encourage increased learning for the wise. Remember, wisdom is not a status that you reach, a level that you graduate to, or a season of life. It's not like becoming the best in your field of work, like a doctor or a chef. It's something that you keep growing in. If you're young, you'll know that you need to pursue more wisdom. But if you're older, are you pursuing wisdom with that same enthusiasm? Or have you begun to run out of steam, begun to cruise, begun to rest on past efforts? Proverbs, it's an ancient book with wisdom available to those who have made a big commitment to God. It's been prepared for us by Solomon, a man who reflected on nature, the trees and plants and beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. He saw the ways of this world. He reflected on it and he gave us many of these proverbs. He was a man who was so wise that he attracted international attention for his wisdom. And while Proverbs is an ancient book, it is also a book that is highly important for Christians today. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 42... Jesus says this, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came to the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. 
and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying that he is greater than Solomon. He is wiser than the wisest man who has ever lived. And in his teaching and in his parables, we see this wisdom on display. See, like Solomon, Jesus reflected on the ways of this world. He heard the sound of seeds hitting the earth. He noticed foxes crawling into their holes. He saw birds settling into their nests, trees without fruit and out of season. He noticed reeds blowing in the wind, the beauty of lilies, the behavior of vultures. And he incorporated all of these images into his teaching, showing that his wisdom surpassed even that of Solomon. And yet he did more. He lived a life of wisdom, a life that was far better than Solomon did. He lived perfectly and constantly in the fear of the Lord. Jesus taught wisdom. He lived wisdom. He was wisdom personified. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And for us, knowing and worshipping Jesus is the starting point for the wise life. And we never grow beyond knowing and worshipping Jesus. Fearing Jesus is the foundation and source of our knowledge and wisdom in life. And so, if you're looking for wisdom, we begin with Proverbs, and our search will take us ultimately to Jesus and His teaching, His life, His death and resurrection. If we're looking for wisdom, we'll also see how His ascension to the right hand of God, where He reigns on high forever, affects our lives today. We'll look to His apostles who teach us, to the wisdom of his brother James and his letter in the New Testament. And then we'll look to Jesus' second coming and what that teaches us about how we are to live today. See, wisdom is skill for living God's way in this world. And wisdom looks to Jesus, who Jesus is, all that he has done, all that he will do, and lives rightly in response to that. That's where we begin in our journey. So let me pray as we begin. Father in heaven, help us fear you properly and help us to be wise. Amen.